0: Welcome to Forensics Faces, I'm Kurt Graves. You know, when I first started coaching in an official capacity a few years ago, I felt very young. I wanted to look like I was in control and knew what I was doing, but I really didn't. But thinking that I was fooling people, in a way, that gave me a great sense of accomplishment. I can say from experience that being the youngest person in a tab room is equal parts swallow your tongue terrifying and floating on rainbows thrilling. This week I'm talking to a coach who must feel that way all the time because he is often the youngest coach in the room. Sean Matson is a graduate of Brookfield East and now coaches for Whitefish Bay. He shares stories from the old days, that term is of course relative, of student competition, some experiences that all coaches can relate to, and what it's like to still be mistaken for a high school student. Sean also shares his thoughts on his new, very grown-up position as chair of the Public Relations Committee for the WFCA. Here is my conversation with Sean. Thank you for joining us, Sean. Just so we can kind of get an idea more of who you are and what you do, other than being a forensics coach, what is your life? What's your day-to-day routine?
1: Um, I am a full-time student. Uh, I go to the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Um, I'm an art history major and a Jewish studies, political science, and history minor. That's most of my life other than forensics. Um, I don't do a whole lot other than socializing, do stuff with my friends, but uh, you know, that's kind of the life of a, uh, a poor college student.
0: You're a graduate of... Brookfield East, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, So in high school, my first year of high school, I actually attended Hartford High School. Um, And then I moved to Brookfield and uh, uh, didn't know if I was going to do forensics. And uh, some kids in my speech class were like, "Uh, Mary Wacker wants to talk to you. And I didn't know who this person was. And she said, you should be on our forensics team. And so I ended up doing forensics for the next three years. And then I graduated from Brookfield East uh, in 2007. Uh, and then I coached uh, at Rufus King for a few years, and then uh, I went over to Whitefish Bay as an assistant coach, uh, and then two years ago I became the head coach at Whitefish Bay High School. So
0: so it's been a whirlwind. Right? Yeah, it's been quite <laughs> a whirlwind, yeah. <laughs> How old are you? I'm 22. 22. Okay, so if you're not the youngest coach, you're probably one of the youngest coaches in the WFCA. Do you think that's an advantage when you're working with high school students, or a disadvantage?
1: Um, I don't know, because I've been 20, I've been 22, but I haven't been 50. So I don't know yet. But I think, um, you know, I know I like working with kids. I like working with high school kids, I wouldn't work with any other age group, because I think high school kids are the coolest and have the most to offer and are still not, you know, old. And, and, you know, I don't know, I don't like hanging out with adults as much as I do with kids. And uh, so I I don't know if that's uh, an attribute of my age because I'm young and I can relate to them, or just because I like working with kids. Um, I think it's definitely an advantage in that kids think they can relate to me more, and I definitely do. We have more similar interests. There's not, you know, the generational divide, you know, that you might see in other areas. So I think it's an an advantage. I think it can also be a disadvantage, too. Um I think it's hard to, for example, I think it's hard for the teachers in my school to see a 20, 20, 22-year-old kid walk in and tell them, I'm using your classrooms, I'm taking your kids from your drama program, I'm doing all this stuff, I'm having all this success, having all this attention, and I think sometimes it's hard for for uh, some of the older people that you deal with, you know, like administrators or, uh, you know, when you deal with like a hotel, you know, there's been, there's been times when I, you know, I walk down to the front desk of the hotel to check into the 15 rooms that I reserved. And they're like, oh, what, you know, where, you know, are you a kid? You know, they think that, you know, they, they don't quite understand that. And as I'm getting older, that has subsided a little bit, but uh, there's advantages and disadvantages, I think.
0: That's interesting. I hadn't thought about the dynamic outside of your own team. I know I, I have the advantage of coaching at the high school where I went to high school. So the newer teachers who are my age, or some of them now even younger, you know, they don't know me. But most of the teachers who have been there who are established who have that role of, you know, an administrator or a, a teacher who has more influence, they at least they at least know me.
1: Yeah, which is also to say that the I think it's a unique relationship that i also have with the parents on our team too because um you know they they see me as a college student you know what i mean they don't see me as just like another person who could also have kids their age you know the parents the parents on my team are are, are great they're excellent they're really supportive they're mindful of the fact that i don't teach in our building and they're mindful of the fact that i am young all that sort of stuff and so um, they're really supportive, and uh, I think it's also cool because uh, I can serve as a role model also to students too, to show that you know you can start giving back to the activity that you can do something meaningful while you're in college and not just you know you have to wait until after grad school, like everyone in forensics thinks you know to actually have an effect on the world. So yeah. if you had to
0: explain forensics to a total stranger,
1: what would you say? i usually I usually explain forensics as, it's like the debate team, but not debate. It's speech and acting, and uh, I think that gets it across. Um, it's hard sometimes to explain people, explain to people what exactly the activity is, because if you talk about, oh, you know, I. I I'm the soccer coach. People know what that is. It's a known quantity. But when you say, you know, you're the forensics coach, you know, first of all, you know, I'll meet people and I'll be like, yeah, you know, I coach forensics and they'll be like, oh, I did forensics. And it turns out that they only did festivals when they're in high school or they're in a different state where there's all different types of activities and different events. And so it varies so much from even the people that know about what forensics is, not to mention that most people have no clue about it. So uh yeah, I you know, I usually just say, you know, competitive speaking and acting.
0: How how often do you have to explain what forensics is to people?
1: Um not a lot, I don't think. I think most of the people in my life understand what I do because I've been doing it for so long now. But uh, you know, from time to time, I You know, especially, you know, if I have an interview for like a scholarship or something or an interview for, you know, uh, an internship or something like that, or I'm talking with one of my professors, um, you do have to explain it. And uh, I think most people don't understand it, but they just kind of like are, are like, oh, okay, All right. Sure. I don't get what you're talking about, but it sounds really cool.
0: Do you ever cheat? Sometimes especially if I'm writing it down uh-huh. um, on an application or a resume, I just put speech coach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's I've just definitely easier.
1: I've definitely done that I've definitely done that. I've definitely done that when talking to people from out of state too. You know, because in a lot of states they don't call forensics in a lot of states they just call it speech. So yeah, I, I've I've done that before. I I admit it.
0: <laughs> well you already told me that you did participate
1: in forensics as a high school
0: student. Can you kinda tell us your, your forensics story?
1: when I was a freshman in high school all of my friends had done middle school forensics like every single one of my friends was in middle school forensics and for whatever reason I didn't in middle school I didn't do anything any activities I was just an awkward little middle school kid like everyone is in middle school um, and then when I got when I was a freshman in high school my best friend Adam said let's do forensics together and let's you know let's do a group acting thing together and I was like okay, you know, what is this? I had no clue what it was. And I was just sort of like, well, my friend wants me to do this. And, you know, I'm not really doing anything extracurricular wise. So okay, I'll try it out. And my friend Adam decided, you know, right before the season was about to start that he wasn't going to do forensics. And the coach talked to me and he's like, well, you should really, you know, Chris Scoggin, he talked to me and he was like, you know, you should really still consider doing forensics, you know, what are your interests? And, eventually pulled it out of me that I'm really interested in current events and politics. And so I started, uh, I wrote a public address speech. And the topic that year, I'm trying to, it was about uh, lawsuits, frivolous lawsuits was the one that I chose. And of course, everyone gave their speech about how there are frivolous lawsuits, they need to be limited. And I took the contrarian opinion and I said, actually, we shouldn't limit litigation. And there's all these cases and uh, stuff like that. I did really well with it. I you know, made the power round at tournaments, never really knowing what I was doing. I, I wasn't like some forensics guru or anything. I was just flying by the seat of my pants. I was kind of naturally good at talking to people and stuff like that. Now that I think about it, the, at the state tournament, I made it to the semifinals, and I didn't even think that I would make it to the semifinals. So I never looked. So I was just like walking around, and, Mr. and this was when we were still at uh, UW-Oshkosh. It was the last year, I think, we were at Oshkosh. Mr. Scoggin like frantically like ran up to me and he's like, "What are you doing? You're supposed to be in your semifinal." And I was like, "What's a semifinal, you know?" And uh you know, I, d- I didn't end up making it to the final. So anyway, so next year I moved and I moved to Brookfield. So my first semester, I took uh honors speech and uh I gave this we had to we had to give this speech about uh our first speech was about like a a valuable item or a valuable object or something that we hold dear to us. So, you know, everyone brought in a picture of, you know, like them with their like soccer trophy or, you know, a picture of their mom or the Bible or, you know, whatever. And, uh, I decided to do my speech on the constitution just cause I, I decided I wanted to do something that was really unique. And that was what, you know, the one thing I could think about. And I gave a really good speech, uh, you know, not to be too self-absorbed, but I gave a really good speech, and all the kids in my class were on forensics, and they must have told the coach uh, about me, and so they kept saying, Mrs. Wacker wants to talk to you. She wants you to come and see her, you know, and I'm thinking, who is this mystical person who knows about me, but I have never met, don't know who they are. So anyways, I ended up joining the team, and uh, my sophomore year, I I did public address as well. I also uh, went to ncfl nationals and oratorical declamation Uh, and then i also started doing student congress that year too i'm trying to think my junior year i did oratory it was my main event i should say my my sophomore year my speech was what was it about it was about childhood obesity and i said again i took the contrarian opinion i said we shouldn't limit uh we shouldn't limit you know junk food and stuff like that my junior year i did an oratory I started to do more categories and started really doing Congress more seriously, went to nationals again. I loved speech writing. I was really fortunate because at that time we had older people on the team who were uh, accomplished uh, oratory competitors who were really good writers and I you know my strength was always that I was a really good writer and so that translated really well into oratory. And I was really successful in state, and uh, I went to nationals, and I didn't go anywhere, but it was really awesome. It was really cool. Then my senior year, I decided, you know, to really uh, to really start working hard. We decided my senior year that we wanted to win the state tournament, and uh, as a team, and me and my best friend, who was the team president, Ben Tolly, decided that we were going to make sure that we could win the state tournament. Uh, so we worked. I mean we did not we were involved in a ton of other things with our lives but it was like if we had any free time it was sitting in our basements practicing forensics having our friends come over and practice with us you know on a friday night or whatever and i did oratory i did special occasion that year i did poetry i did uh what else did I do? I did a whole ton of stuff, uh, and over the course of my career, I, I did radio, I did Congress, I did I something like at least ten different categories, you know, whatever. And group and Terp. So my so my best friend decided he was gonna do a group and Terp with these two other girls so that he could double enter at tournaments. And I was kind of mad at him because he didn't ask me to be a part of it. And so I. Talked to one of my other friends and I said, "Well, let's let's do a do- group interpret together too," and so we did. And uh, we did it at I think the Madison Memorial Tournament was the first time we did it, and we got second place. And our friend, my friend Ben, and his group got first place in it. And then we did it again at New London, and we won the tournament. And uh, then when when Mrs. Wacker was deciding on who to pick for the state team um, because, uh, there were a lot of people that she had to cut. Uh, she decided to, um, take us in group and terp and not in our main events. Um, and it ended up working out really, really well. Um, because both of our group and terps advanced to the final round and mine won the state uh, championship and my friends got the second place and we got perfect prelims and it helped us. And, uh, it eventually helped the, our team win uh, the state championship for the first time in school history, which was a really cool uh, opportunity. Uh, but I can't tell you how much work we put into like our own our own performances, but also coaching our teammates too. You know, we we decided at the beginning of the year, okay, if we're gonna do this, who who needs to be on that state team and who's going to be on that state team and how can we make them even better and we picked like four or five people and you know I would take you know one person at practice into a room alone and I would just work with them I also went to nationals my senior year in oratory, NCFL and NFL nationals, which was a great experience. I was the next person to break at NCFL nationals in oratory. So I've, I've always been a little bit bitter about that still. And, uh, we all have our bridesmaid stories, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, and then at NFL nationals, I did supplementals, uh, which is a really cool thing to do if you ever go to NFL nationals. Um, and I did an expository speech and before we went to nationals, we kind of like tentatively set, decided like what we were going to do for supplementals if we didn't advance and worked on it but you you never really work on the supplemental stuff much because you're like well you know hopefully i'll break you know and so my speech was about colony collapse disorder which is about this uh, phenomenon among honeybees where they're like colonies are just like dying uh, and there's an unknown reason why it's happening and so when I found out I didn't break an oratory that night, me and my friend Ben stayed up pretty much all night rewriting our speeches because we realized they were really terrible and we wanted to do well and we were really mad. And so we're channeling our frustration from the fact that we didn't break into writing really good speeches. And, you know, it got to be like 3 a.m. and I was like, okay, I need like three hours of sleep, you know? So I went to bed and Ben stayed up and the next day, I, I advanced in supplementals into like six or seven rounds, which was really cool. And it was a really good speech. And I, I really enjoyed it. It was really fun. It's cool when you get to supplementals, because there's no one that's like the top dog, everyone has been, you know, humbled a little bit by the fact that they didn't break. And so it's, it's a lot more friendly. And then it's a lot more like, well, we're all in this together, we all feel like idiots, you know, so it was a really good experience. I ended up forgetting my speech in the middle of my round because I was just so exhausted and but it was a great experience um so I, I guess that's a I don't know if that's the long version or the short version of <laughs> my high school forensics career but yeah. I think it's the good
0: amount version one of the goals of the podcast is to give people who otherwise wouldn't have um, inside access to how the WFCA works a little more of an idea of what goes on you know, behind the scenes. And this year, I believe you took on an official role within the WFCA. What is your official title? I am the
1: chair of the public relations committee. And what does that mean? Um, I'm not quite sure yet what it means. Um, There is, uh, you know, for people who don't know, the executive board over the summer took, and this is before I was on the executive board, did the strategic planning for the future of the organization and to try to figure out ways in which we could improve and stuff like that. And one of the ways that uh, we want to improve is that we want to make uh, our committees more uh, responsive to the needs of the organization. So the Public Relations Committee really wasn't, isn't responsive to the needs of the organization because, you know, the role of the PR committee in the past was to do things like send out mailings and print labels and stuff like that. We now obviously have email now we've moved into the 21st century. So there's definitely still PR things that can be done. And we're in the phase right now of kind of figuring out what exactly that could be and what that role should be. Obviously, um, public relations, you know, I guess my vision is to, uh, support the organization, you know, not only to the media, but also to other schools and to market ourselves a little bit better. And because that's something I, th- I think that's an area where we can improve because, uh, you know, there's a reason people don't know about forensics is because we're not marketing ourselves and, and no one's going to market us for us. No one's going to say, hey, you know, forensics is really cool unless we're doing that. So, uh, you know, that's kind of my role right now is kind of setting, I think, an agenda for what to do. Uh, on the Public Relations Committee, but uh, it's definitely a work in progress. What do you think the WFCA image
0: or, or brand is right now?
1: Um, I I think, not to dodge the answer, but I don't, I don't know if there is a brand. I don't know if there is much of an image. Um, I think people get into coaching WFCA, you know, one of two ways. Either word of mouth from other coaches who are like, you know, you should really coach, or... You know, from a teacher that says, you know, be the forensics coach or whatever, or through schools that, and I think this is rare, th- schools that have principals and administrators that value forensics, uh, and so when one coach leaves, says, okay, we gotta find a forensics coach. Um, I think the image of the organization itself is pretty transparent. I don't think people, I don't think you can walk up to you know almost ninety nine percent of people in Wisconsin and say, oh yeah, the WFCA and people know what you're talking about. If you mention the WIAA, they know what you're talking about. That's the athletic organization, does a very good job of marketing themselves and making themselves relevant to administrators, coaches, and students. Um, and so I think our image is uh, our image is, has potential, I guess, if I want to be an optimist here. Uh, I think there's potential to... to to mold our our image and to brand ourselves and to show that we are an organization that provides so many advantages to students and adds so much value to communities and to uh, school districts. So, uh, yeah.
0: So I I think what I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that we really have a a clean slate to work off of. Right. And so it can go in any direction we want. Because as an organization, we're still, to a certain degree, anonymous. Right.
1: Right. And, you know, there's, the, there's, the, there's the, the, the situation where there are two forensic organizations in the state. I think the other organization does a better job of making themselves visible in schools because they, they link into schools not only through speech, but also through debate and also through theater, uh, and, which is something that we don't do. Um, as an organization, you know, we have to find a way that we can advocate and say well, we are an organization that you want to be a part of.
0: Do you have anything on on your mind that you're hoping will come to pass as far as public relations is concerned in the next year or two?
1: Yes, definitely. The National Forensic League has developed um, basically a system where they provide press releases to chapters to uh, market and to send out news to news organizations or to administrators and stuff like that. And I'd I'd like to come up with a system where – you know, we can help chapters market themselves to their communities and to, you know, because so much lies in the area of fundraising for teams now. And so, you know, it's, it would be so good if those teams are known about in the community. I do a lot of work with my team, you know, trying to be friends with the editor of our local patch site and the Journal Sentinel site and all that stuff, just because um, whenever we have a fundraiser roll around, I can email this person and be like, hey, put this out there. So to get back to the question at hand, one thing that I would like to do is have uh, some sort of uh, toolkit uh, for chapters to use to market themselves. The other thing I would do also is to, you know, I think we should be contacting every high school in the state. and telling them about our organization and asking them to join and asking them to find a forensics coach and asking them to field a team. You know, I I think especially right now, a lot of people are using and a lot of school districts are using the fact that the economic climate isn't the best as an excuse to not have a vision and to not take bold steps to add an extracurricular and stuff like that. Uh, But when it comes down to it, you know, even if it's the teeny tiniest little school district, the percentage of the budget that a forensics team would take is very, very small, and so when when I'm told that you know well, there's not the money for it or stuff like that, um, I'm not as convinced. What I am convinced of though is that we do lack the uh, the resources for people who want to coach. Uh, there's a very uh, there's a shortage of human capital, I think, and I think that is a is a threat to our activity more than I think the financial issues are, which I don't think people recognize often. I think it's hard for teachers to teach and coach right now. I think it's hard for people who have other real jobs to teach and do those jobs right now because it's such a commitment and uh, you're not going to get rich off of it, you know. So um, it's difficult, I think, to find people. And so, you know, as a, as a PR person now. Now that I'm wearing that hat, uh, I don't have any official background in public relations, but you know I do have some common sense, and I think that we have to market ourselves better to a whole host of people.
0: How has forensics impacted your life?
1: Uh, in so many ways. I don't. I don't even know where to start. Um, forensics has impacted my way in. Uh, in the area of networking, I have met so many people that i have had an instant connection with especially in the academic world who know about what forensics and debate is or were a part of it and respect it if you go into an interview uh, a lot of times if you mention that it gives you instant credibility because they know that you've been trained in how to communicate effectively and i think you know whatever field you're you're in um the skill of communication is more important than ever. I think it's a real big difference maker, not only in, you know, whatever job you're going to pursue or a scholarship interview or in an interview for a job. It, you know, it gives you that added charisma and confidence that most people don't have. And, um, you know, am I nervous every time I go into an interview or talk with someone, you know, if when I talk to, like, my superintendent or when I go to the state capitol and talk to my state senator or you know, all that sort of stuff. I'm still nervous, but forensics has trained me to have a good poker face and to perform uh, without showing that, you know, I'm nervous or, you know, I'm not necessarily totally and completely comfortable.
0: Are there any skills that you learned in forensics that you know you use every day?
1: Definitely uh, my ability to be concise. You know, when you're a busy person, you're, you know, you're responding to so many emails every day and you're, Uh, dealing with so many issues, you have to prioritize what's important and decide how exactly you're going to approach those things. Um, Same thing was true in forensics. You know, you have to decide what, you know, what's important, you know, you have to take, you know, if you're doing a prose piece and you have to take an entire book and cut it down to eight minutes, you know, that takes a skill of determining and prioritizing what's important out of that book. Of course, there's a million different stories that you can pull out of a book, but what's the story that you want to pull out? Another skill that I think is supremely important is that, you know, I have found, you know, my inner voice. You know, I trust my thoughts. I trust my opinions. I trust, you know, my skills because they've been honed and because they've been tested. And I think that's really important. I think it's important for people in life to find what they have to offer to the, to the conversation, you know. So whatever role I'm in whether it's working on a committee or doing schoolwork you know I'm always looking for something to say or something to do that's going to be something that only I could offer something that isn't necessarily going to come from everyone you know thinking outside of the box and that's something that I don't I haven't met a lot of people who weren't in forensics that understand that and I so I think that's really important I, I would say I use it every day
0: what do you consider to be your greatest forensics accomplishment?
1: Hmm, this is that's a really hard question. I really enjoyed being in forensics as a student, but there's something about coaching that makes it that much more special because you know what it feels like to, you know, not be good at something and then become good at something or you know, finally catch a break or do something that you really love. Uh, When you're a coach that's like multiplied by like 40 times because you get to see, you know, your kids doing it and and working and achieving more and uh, advancing themselves and doing the things that you yourself did and even more. There's, you know, several moments every year where there's a kid who has been maybe not struggling, but, you know, there's a moment where there's like a breakthrough or an epiphany. And I think being a coach isn't about like telling a kid what to do. Or giving them a piece or kind of controlling them it's about giving them the opportunity and giving them the creative space to do that and so I guess I would think that my greatest forensic achievement has been you know as a coach giving kids the creative space to kind of find their voice and 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 achieve their dreams I guess as corny as that sounds I don't think it sounds corny at all this might get corny
0: what is your favorite forensics memory
1: Favorite forensics memory? Well, anyone who knew me in high school would know that I have a lot of really good and funny forensic stories. When we were in high school, and I think I think Tom Harden, the coach at Madison Memorial, knows about this story because uh, I think I, I hope told so, him. He's about to, because he's about <laughs> to. Um, there was there was a tournament we were at where after the tournament you know, everyone kind of left, but the Madison team stayed there and the Brookfield team stayed there just, you know, so the coaches could give instructions. Okay, we're doing this and we're going back or we're stopping at Applebee's or, you know, whatever. And Tom Harden was just giving this really, you know, rough housing speech to the kids about their performance that day and stuff like that. And, uh, and so, uh, we got to uh, our next tournament. We, it was the new London tournament and, uh, we do warm ups in the morning so we'd find a classroom to go into with the team and we do all sorts of tongue twisters and warm ups and stuff like that. And just out of the blue, just I don't know why it happened. I decided to do an impression of Tom Harden. It's on videotape somewhere. Uh someone has it. I think Mary Wacker has it somewhere. Um it's one of the skeletons in my closet. Uh, but it was really funny and it was uh, it was really enjoyable. There were windows into the classroom and I was so loud that people heard me. And, uh, it was really funny. I would love
0: nothing more than to get a copy of that video.
1: Yeah. I'm going to try to not, not make that available (laughs) to people, but you know, as a kid, as a kid, there's some coaches that you would see every week and they were just, you know, intriguing to you for some reason. And Tom Harden for me was always one of those people because he has such a strong personality and, uh, you know, I think people tend to think that Tom is a really rough guy, but when you get to know him, he's actually such a really nice guy. Uh, but, yeah, I, I did my Tom Harden impression. It was very funny. <laughs> what is Farago? What is Farago? farrago? Uh, I believe the word Farago means a collection of things, of, like, different textures or different uh, types. Uh, Farago is a forensics category. Um, uh, you're smiling because I think you this is a a curveball question maybe right
0: no this is one of the questions that i am just really interested to see how many different answers i get from the people i interview i think it's one of those categories that everybody has an idea of what it is or what it should be Mm -hmm. and it's there's not a consensus so i'm interested to see what comes out okay cool so Um, i'm smiling just because i'm genuinely interested in what you're about to say
1: okay um yeah, I guess I understand Farrago as a category from the linguistic root of what a Farago is. It's not an oft-used word, but uh, you know, it's, the purpose of a Farago is to take things that are of a different type, in the case of forensics, from different genres, and to put them together to create a new and more refined meaning from them.
0: Um, in your mind, what is the difference between interp and acting?
1: Hmm, this is a hard question. It's a it's a very fine line, I think. I think acting is tends to be more physical and more visual. I think it tends to focus on characterization and dialogue more. Whereas I think interpretation is less active, uh, less acting and and more telling. So less showing and more telling, I think. But I think there's definitely a big over overlap. I think defining it is really difficult. I also think that there is a sort of there's just something you can't quite put your foot, uh, your finger on, where you know if something is or isn't acting, or is or isn't interp. And I think it's hard for, I think myself and a lot of people to say what that is. What advice do you have for forensics students today? My my advice to students in forensics is to don't let anyone else be at your coach or someone else or your parents. Don't let anyone else tell you what you should do or what you shouldn't do. Take their advice, but, you know, kind of have a true compass for yourself about, you know, what you really care about because forensics offers the opportunity, whatever category you're in among the 20 categories that we have to share your message with an audience every week. And that's an opportunity that most people don't have in their lives is a room of people who want to hear what you have to say and truly care about what you think and what you feel and how you interpret a text or or anything like that. That, That's such a unique opportunity and so my advice is to take advantage of that opportunity. Don't give a speech about something you don't care about. Don't pick a piece about something that you don't think is funny or touching or whatever. You know, do something that is going to That is going to make you happy and is going to is going to, you know, inflame your passions because that's what's going to connect to your audience. Okay, Sean,
0: each week we try to outsmart our guest in our game. It's called FaceTime. So this is how it works. I have 20 questions inspired by a forensics category. You have 90 seconds. That's 75 seconds with a 15 second grace period to answer as many questions as you can. Your topic this week is based on four-minute speech. As you know, four-minute is the shortest forensics category, so I'm going to ask you 20 questions about people of diminutive stature, and your final score will be printed on a FaceTime plaque for you to show off to family and friends. Your 90 seconds begins when I finish reading the first question. He was the fourth president of the United States, and he was also the shortest at 5'4". John
1: Quincy Adams? John Adams. John mm. Adams. Giant James Madison. James Madison.
0: She was the author of Jane Eyre and only 4'9. Charlotte Bronte? Correct. A short man at 5'2", Blank was a big criminal and notorious cult leader in the 1960s.
1: Charles Manson?
0: Correct. At five feet tall, Blank shot to fame playing Louis De Palma on the television series Taxi.
1: Uh, Danny DeVito?
0: Correct. He is just 5'3", and just won a Golden Globe for Best Director for Hugo. I don't know, Martin Scorsese. This Different Strokes actor was only four foot eight, but made a big impact with his catchphrase "What you talking about, Willis?" Gary Lewis. Coleman. Very good. <laughs> this nine to five singer and actress is only four eleven, but is well recognized for two other very big assets.
1: Uh, Dolly Parton. <laughs> Correct.
0: This 18th century poet was known for his satirical verse and his translation of Homer, and he was only four six.
1: Oh, I know this, but I don't know it.
0: Alexander Pope. Only 4'11", she was a spiritual leader and co-host of the 700 Club, whose eye makeup was as infamous as her preacher husband's adultery.
1: I also know this, but I don't know this.
0: Um, I don't know. Tammy Faye Baker. Also at 4'11", she is the Tony and Emmy winner who co-starred in the original cast of Wicked as Glinda.
1: I'm really hating myself right now. I, I know this, but I don't. Christian Chenoweth.
0: Don't he was know. only five feet tall, but he was a huge American industrialist and philanthropist in the 19th century. He even has his own hall in NYC.
1: Uh, Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie.
0: Correct. And that is 90 seconds. <laughs> okay, that was six correct answers. That one was tough. Thank you very much for being a part of Forensics Faces, and we look forward to seeing you this forensic season.
1: Sure. Thanks.
0: Thanks for joining us for Forensics Faces. Special thanks to this week's Forensics Face, Sean Matson. Check out exclusive content like Sean's must-do list on the Forensics Faces blog at ForensicsFaces.com. Get Forensics Faces updates on Twitter by following at Forensics Faces. This program is recorded and edited by Kurt Graves. Our theme song is by Kate Marshall. FaceTime prizes are furnished by Distinctive Images. Learn more at DistinctiveImages.net. Forensics Faces is produced with the support of the W WFCA, developing communication skills vital for a lifetime of effective participation in society. Find out more at WFCAforensics.org.